Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Hello and welcome to Addressing Alaskans. I'm Ammon Swenson. Today's episode features a panel discussion on the future of Alaska's caribou. Panelists include representatives from the Alaska Division of Wildlife Conservation, the Office of Subsistence Management, Nano Regional Corporation, and the Western Arctic Caribou Herd Working Group. The discussion was moderated by Jocelyn Estes, journalist and national correspondent for ICT, formerly Indian Country Today. This event was hosted by Alaska Public Media and was recorded at the Alaska Native Heritage Center on December 13th. Alaska Public Media's Chief Content Officer, Linda Way, speaks next. I have the pleasure of welcoming the president of the native village of Aklutna, Aaron Leggett, to the stage. And he will be welcoming us to the Denina lands on which this event is being held. So, Aaron, thank you. Yali Atlanda, Shishida Aaron Leggett, Gash Danak, Shi'i, Chu'u Chada Denainak, Shi'i, Nolchin Atlan, Chu'u, Idlorat, Shkayachti, Shtukta, Rick Leggett, Shunkta, Diane Bowles. Hello, everybody. Again, my name is Aaron Leggett. I have the honor of being the president of the native village of Aklutna. The native village of Aklutna is the only federally and now state-recognized tribe here in the municipality of Anchorage, and it's my honor to do a welcome here and uh, welcome you to our Denina Ethnena, the Denina homeland. My day job is the senior curator of Alaska history and indigenous cultures at the Anchorage Museum, and before that I actually worked here at the Alaska Native Heritage Center. But in thinking about the topic tonight, one of the things I think that has surprised a lot of people, uh, having traveled around the world uh, looking at Denina artifacts in uh, museums all over, a lot of the things that were collected in late 18th century into the 19th century into the early 20th century was traditional Denina summer clothing. By far, this represents the largest percentage of items that are in museums around the world. What's interesting about the fact of our summer clothing is that the vast majority of it was made from caribou. I think a lot of people are surprised to know that uh, at least in the last few centuries, up until the early part of the 20th century, uh, the caribou were were used in, in a much larger percentage uh, than moose. Oral tradition says that probably starting in the 1880s, 1890s, uh, as people came into Cook Inlet and started changing habitat that the uh, caribou, which were actually a, a subspecies of caribou called the woodland caribou. They're a little bit bigger. They don't herd up in, in large numbers, and they primarily dwelled in forests. But as the habitat changed, there were a series of wildfires, especially down on the Kenai Peninsula, and market hunting and, and more people coming to our area. The uh, woodland caribou disappeared, as they have throughout most of Alaska. There is still a small herd that kind of straddles the border uh, between the Yukon Territory uh, in Alaska. But I just thought I'd, I'd put that out there. So I think this topic is is very pressing that the disappearance of caribou is not necessarily a recent phenomenon. So with that, I just want to say chinam guninyu. Uh, thank you. You guys all came here today, and I hope you enjoy the panel. Thank you so much, Aaron. So for tonight, we're having a discussion because of a Ken Burns documentary series that premiered on Alaska Public Media in October. 
American Buffalo is the dramatic story of how America's national mammal, once numbering in the tens of millions and sustaining the native people of the Great Plains for untold generations, was driven to the brink of extinction. Meanwhile, Alaska is the home of roughly 30 distinct herds of caribou present across a wide swath of the state. Each herd has different environmental, predatory, and epidemiological considerations that affect their health, and each has a long history with the indigenous communities they share the land with. Much like the American buffalo, the Alaska caribou herd sizes have ebbed and flowed. But in recent years, a few particular herds, including the largest herd in the state, have seen a rapidly declining numbers in which is what our discussion will be about tonight. So now I'd like to introduce our moderator. We have the amazing Jocelyn Estes. Jocelyn is a national correspondent for the Alaska Bureau of ICT, formerly Indian Country Today, an online news platform. You can read some of her work at ictnews.org. She covers everything from climate change and resource development to homelessness. And since 1990, she's worked as a reporter for several radio stations in Alaska and at Minnesota Public Radio, and as a director of public communications for the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. Earlier, she worked in coastal management and as a historian. We'll meet Jocelyn and the panel immediately after this clip from American Buffalo. And so this clip that you're about to see goes into the biology of the American buffalo and the impact that they've had on their environment. But it also highlights the amount of time the buffalo have shared with the indigenous people of the Great Plains and how only very recently outsiders began to interact with them. It's in that timeline where we really see the connection with Alaska's caribou. And so here is the clip. If you see one out grazing, it looks so slow it's like a parked car sitting there, but they can clear six-foot fences. They can jump a horizontal jump of seven feet. They can hit a speed, hit a speed of 35 miles an hour. And you're talking about something that can get going that speed that's 1,800 pounds. It's like a souped-up hot rod of an animal hiding in a minivan shell. Fully grown, an American buffalo can weigh more than a ton, stand taller than six feet at the shoulder, and stretch more than 10 feet long, not including the tail. Huge as they are, they are small compared to some of the prehistoric animals that once roamed the continent. Woolly mammoths, giant ground sloths and camels, and other species of bison, one of which had horns that spanned nine feet from tip to tip. After humans arrived in North America more than 20,000 years ago, all of the biggest animals, along with nearly 50 other species, went extinct on the continent from either hunting or changing climate or a combination of the two. In their place, the modern buffalo evolved and multiplied particularly on the grasslands of the Great Plains. Bison and humans, in, in a real sense, co-evolved alongside one another over the last 10,000 years or so. Sometimes the animals would ebb and flow, but they always rebounded. And so there was this wonderful kind of dynamic equilibrium that lasted for more than 10,000 years. They have always lived with humans. 
They've always been hunted by humans. They've always had predators. So their entire sort of evolution as, as an animal species has been as an animal that has been um, hunted. And their primary defense mechanism is to, to run away. And they have that skill at a very young age. A newborn buffalo calf tries to stand for the first time at the age of two minutes. And at seven minutes, they're able to run with a herd. Over the centuries, their grazing habits on the wide expanses of the Great Plains proved crucial to its ecology. The types of grasses that flourished there and the other species that thrived alongside the buffalo. Even when they stopped and sometimes dug through the grass with their horns and then rolled in the dust, creating buffalo wallows, the bison's habits helped support other forms of life on the plains. It's not just one wallow. We're talking about millions of bison, which means millions of wallows. Those wallows could do a couple of things. At its most simple and basic, it's a dirt bath. But then it also has an ecosystem function, water retention. If it rained, these become shallow little ponds and pools, and that in turn affected the landscape as well. Because it's also a disturbed area, plants that flourish in disturbed areas will also then grow around a wallow. So they became these really great areas, not only for um, wildlife to use, but also for humans to use because of the plants that were there. When the buffalo are here, the land is good. When the land is good, the buffalo are healthy. We have lived here for 600 generations. We have been here conservatively 12,000 years. So if you think about that 12,000 years, imagine that on a timeline, and then take that 12,000 years and wrap that timeline around a 24-hour clock. What that means is that Columbus arrived at about 11.28 p.m., and Lewis and Clark at about 15 minutes before midnight. Well, that was nice. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jocelyn Estes, and welcome to Alaska Public Media's community discussion on the future of Alaska's caribou. I'll introduce our panel of experts and have some questions for them to discuss. Then we'll give them questions from the audience on the health and future of Alaska's caribou herds. So our panelists today are Chris Krenz, down at the end, Chief Wildlife Scientist with the Alaska Division of Wildlife Conservation. He works at the cross-section of scientific information research and management and policy decisions for the state of Alaska's Division of Wildlife Conservation. He oversees wildlife management and helps to coordinate research across the division. Next is Heidi Hatcher, Unit 13 Area Biologist, also with Alaska Division of Wildlife Conservation. She's based in Glen Allen and manages big game and fur bearer populations for game management units in South Central Interior and Eastern Interior Alaska. Lisa Gretigan 
is a supervisory wildlife biologist with the Federal Office of Subsistence Management. She oversees federal subsistence harvest regulations for wildlife in Alaska, including caribou. Her office is responsible for reviewing and issuing opinions on all proposed changes to subsistence regulations before they're decided on by the Federal Subsistence Board. Cyrus Harris is Inupiaq. He's uh, vice chair of the Western Arctic Caribou Herd Working Group. He was raised by his parents and grandparents in Sisaluk, a spit 12 miles across the bay from Kotzebue. He also represents the people of Northwest Alaska in several other, other forums, such as the Alaska Migratory Bird Co-Management Council and the Alaska Beluga Whale Committee. In 1993, Cyrus established the Hunter Support Program with Maniluk Association, which provides traditional foods to elders, and he's a lifelong hunter. Liz Kolak Carvalho, also in Nupiak. Kolak is Vice President of Lands for the Alaska Native Regional Corporation, NANA, in Northwest Alaska. She's responsible for providing leadership and management for programs that focus on environmental protection and subsistence use of NANA lands. She's also a commissioner with the U.S. Arctic Research Commission and on the Alaska Board of Directors for the Inuit Circumpolar Council. And my first question is for Chris Krenz. And how about if you give us an overview of caribou? How many herds are there? Where are they located? And what are some of their population trends? Thank you. And uh, first off, thank you very much for having me here. I thought that was a great introduction with the bison here in the state of Alaska. It's very similar in that we have caribou. And there's this amazing cross-section of people that are interested and care deeply about caribou across the board. And so I, th- I do think that is a really nice tie-in. So there's 31 caribou herds, at least, that we've defined at Fishing Game as ca- different caribou herds. And some of these caribou herds fluctuate over time, and they kind of the smaller ones kind of come to be, and then they blink out. And it's hard to decide when when is a caribou herd been around long enough that we're going to call it a herd, especially some of these smaller ones. So some of the smaller ones are only tens of animals, and whereas some of the larger ones are in the hundreds of thousands of animals. And so there's a really big range there in terms of caribou herds. And they really occur across much of Alaska. There are caribou herds not here in Anchorage, uh, not in the Chugach, not in Prince William Sound, not in my home area of southeast Alaska, but pretty much everywhere else. And where there's not caribou out on the Aleutians, people have put reindeer out there, and they're the same species. They've just been imported from uh, Europe. So we have caribou almost throughout the entire state in these, these various herds. In terms of how they're, they're doing, it's, it's interesting to think about caribou herds because we often look at them based on their peaks, and caribou herds fluctuate in size a great deal. And so if we're always just looking at the peaks of caribou herds, we're often going to be looking at it in terms of what it used to be. And it can be a little bit deceiving to use the baseline of the point when the herd was at its highest. Because oftentimes when it's at its highest, it's actually not that healthy. It may have too many animals on the landscape for what the landscape can support. So that's often how they're measured. There's other ways to look at it. And I'll give sort of a broad view in terms of, of my perspective on it. 
if one looks at the barren ground caribou, which are the caribou on the north slope, there's four different herds. There's the western arctic herd, which is part of the focus here. And we're going to talk quite a bit about the western arctic herd, so I won't say much, but it's declining. It's at about 150,000, and it's down from you know, close to 500,000 uh, caribou. So it's, it's, it's down and it's declining. The other three herds on the North Slope are doing pretty well. The Teshapuk herd, the Central Arctic herd, and the Porcupine caribou herd. The Porcupine caribou herd is at the highest numbers that we've, we've seen. It's been a few years since we've done a count, but it's, it's at fairly high numbers. The Mulchatna herd is in the tank. We're not allowing harvest. That's both on the federal side and the state side. There's no harvest that's allowed there. And similar, the Nelchina herd, which Heidi Hatcher will talk about, is is not doing as well. Other sort of medium-sized herds, like the 40-mile herd, it hit a recent peak, and we were concerned about the health of the herd, and the herd started declining, and we also increased harvest to bring the size of the herd down so that it was a smaller herd so that it wouldn't have as large an impact, hopefully, on the environment. And so the caribou that remained would be healthier. That's probably more than enough, and I probably rambled on a little bit too much. Oh, so no. thank you. Yeah, perfect. So Heidi Hatcher, uh, caribou populations, as Chris explained, often take big swings up and down. Can you um, explain that dynamic? What are some of the factors that lead to these big swings in populations? Absolutely. Yeah. So Chris did mention that they are very dynamic populations and they exist on very complex ecosystems and complex landscapes. So there are a lot of different factors that can affect those population trends and those population cycles. I think another really interesting parallel from that intro that you showed, they talked about bison also ebbing and flowing to some extent, but always rebounding. And for the most part, that's what we see with caribou as well, especially the larger herds and the more migratory herds, is they definitely go through natural boom and bust cycles. Um, But typically when we see a bust, we are going to eventually see another boom in most cases. Now, some of the things that affect those populations, boiling it down, kind of given a general overview, really the productivity of the herd, the recruitment of calves into the population every year, and adult mortality. And all three of those characteristics are affected by things like nutrition, the quality and the quantity of forage on the landscape that's available for the animals. That can affect productivity. It can affect recruitment. It can also affect adult mortality. Um, All other things, disease, can affect the population's predation, of course, especially, well, whether we're talking about predation from animals or predation from humans as, as a source as well, um, that those can certainly be limiting factors that can affect uh, population trends. Um, so boiling it down, those are some of the really main things that affect these populations. And then on top of that, of course, we have weather. We have deep snow years, some years that can affect how much energy the animals require to make it through the winter. If they didn't have enough nutrition on the summer range to put enough fat reserves on to be able to sustain sustain themselves through the extra energy that's needed for severe winter, then both nutrition and and weather might be affecting that population and and that winter we might have higher adult mortality and lower recruitment. So So, um, explain what recruitment is. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for asking that. So Of course, productivity is how many calves the adult cow 
portion of the population is going to have in a year. And then recruitment is how many of those calves are going to be, are going to survive their first year of life. And at that point, we consider them recruited into the population. Um, so recruitment is essentially of the calves that are born, how many first are going to survive through to fall, and then from there, how many are going to survive through the winter as well to that first full year of life. So, yeah, some other, you know, climate factors. There are certainly times in some areas that rain on snow events can cause ice layers that can make it difficult for caribou to access food in the winter. Um, not all rain on snow events are going to be that dramatic and cause that big of an effect, but certainly in some in some places in some years that can be an issue as well. So, like I said, a lot of really dynamic factors that affect these dynamic populations. Great. Thank you. So, Lisa Gretigan, how is the harvest of wildlife managed on federal lands in Alaska? And one of the follow-up questions for that is, how do you bring science, public input, and traditional knowledge into federal decision-making? And then I know you're going to talk about proposals that you get for harvesting animals. So can you give us some examples of proposals that are under consideration? So caribou harvest is duly managed on federal public lands in Alaska, so anyone can harvest under state regulations, whereas only rural residents of Alaska may harvest under federal regulations. And anyone can submit a proposal to change federal subsistence harvest regulations. Uh, We have a couple proposals right now, which I can speak to a little bit more in a bit, but both affecting the Western Arctic and Nelchina caribou herds. And these proposals go through an extensive year-long review process that incorporates a staff analysis that considers uh, biological information such as population estimates, composition surveys, harvest data, cultural and traditional knowledge. Tribal consultations are held on all the proposals, and there's numerous opportunities for public input, including a written comment period, and opportunities for the public to testify directly to the decision makers at the meetings. So speaking a little more specifically to the proposals that are currently halfway through the review process is we have several proposals for the Western Arctic caribou herd to reduce the harvest limit. So that's in response to the drastic precipitous decline of the Western Arctic herd and also to close federal public lands to anyone hunting under state regulations or sport hunting. And then there's another one for the Alchina herd to increase management flexibility. And I'm not sure if there's opportunity to talk a little bit more of these later as we have time. So I guess I'll just leave it there and see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there will probably be follow-up questions from the audience. So um, Cyrus Harris, earlier we heard how important buffalo are to the Plains Indians. How are caribou important to Alaskans and Alaska natives? Caribou is very important. It's our main source of meat that we get during the hunting season, whether it be the fall season, midwinter, and spring. And not just for the meat, but many uses also for the skin. We prefer to have the skins during the early fall before they get into their winter coat for uh, making certain parts for certain certain things, such as mucklucks. Legging, the, the legs would be made for mucklucks. The body parts would be either 
what made for parkas. I actually slept in a uh, caribou sleeping bag. So many of our people depended on the caribou for many, many purposes, many reasons. Okay, thanks. And Liz Kolak Crivalio <laughs> had to say it and get it right this time. <laughs> when Nana was, and maybe you can tell people what the Red Dog Mine is, but when Nana was planning the uh, zinc mine, what were some of the steps that were taken to manage impacts to caribou, and how have those turned out? So for folks who may not be familiar, Nana is an Alaska Native-owned corporation. We are actually a merged corporation, so if you're familiar with the difference between regional corporations and village corporations, essentially we manage both surface and subsurface estate. And the reason I raise this is the Red Dog Mine, of course, is a natural resource that exists under the subsurface estate. And the original vision of ANGSA, right, was for our people to own our land in fee simple title and then utilize that land to maintain our way of life and pursue economic development opportunities. One of the core parts of NANA's policies and our land's policies is that subsistence is the highest and best use of our land. Um, as Cyrus talked about, caribou is central to our way of life, similar to marine mammals being really important to our way of life as well, um, especially for us coastal Inupaks. And when the region was considering the Red Dog Mine, it was at a time when we were transitioning. Uh, people were um, wanting to have jobs, the opportunity to remain in the region, and the opportunity to have schools in their communities. And so the decision to establish the Red Dog Mine, which is just north of, of Kotzebue across the Sound, it's connected to the coast by 52-mile road, and it is the highest producer of lead and zinc in the world, depending on the day. It's either the first or the second. And it has coexisted with the Western Arctic caribou herd migration during its low point and its high points with the road there. And I think central to those decisions and thinking about caribou was our agreement with our operator tech includes a subsistence committee. It also includes an oversight committee that looks at what potential impacts there are, how we can continually improve operations. Uh, we have certain stopping distances that are set and sometimes adjusted when caribou are in the area. More recently, we've been experimenting with having slower speeds during migration times um, and then communicating with communities about any potential impacts they're seeing or impacts that we're seeing up at the site. So at the very outset of Red Dog, the subsistence committee participated in establishing the road, figuring out the route, and really talking about how to minimize impacts to the herd while also pursuing the opportunity to have economic development. So it's a real important part of how the mine continues to operate and um, is a part of our conversations uh, when we will eventually have closure. Thanks. So, Lisa, I had a question for you. What is the federal government's mandate as far as subsistence concerned? And give an example of how that's manifested. And I'm thinking of the provision in ANILCA. Yeah, so per Title VIII of ANILCA, which is the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act of 1980, subsistence use is afforded priority over other consumptive uses of fish and wildlife on federal public lands in Alaska. So translation is subsistence hunting is prioritized over sport hunting. And oftentimes this is manifested through longer seasons or higher harvest limits under federal regulations, but there is also a provision to close federal public lands to sport hunting if necessary, for conservation or to con continue subsistence use. And so a good example of this is in northwestern Alaska within the range of the western Arctic caribou herd where some federal public lands were closed to continue subsistence uses of caribou. 
However, due to the conservation concerns over the precipitous decline of the herd, this closure area was temporarily expanded. And as mentioned earlier, there are currently several proposals to codify this expanded closure area, again, because of conservation concerns over the drastic decline of the herd. So, um, Cyrus, how is climate change, we'll stick with the topic of the Western Arctic herd, how is climate change affecting the herd? Yeah, climate change is real. It was told by our elders that once the caribou start moving from north, whether it be uh, uh, from their calving grounds to their winter, uh, to their, uh, winter range, which is the heart of Kotzebue, um, it was advised and told by our elders that the caribou would move once temperatures start cooling off tremendously enough for them to uh, head to their wintering grounds. Back in the day, before we really started experiencing this climate ch- these climate change issues, we, the caribou would be on time. They'd be on a part, later part of uh, August and f- full part of September that they're actually crossing either on the Notak or, or, the, or, or the Kobuk rivers. And that's the preferred time we choose to get them before the bulls get in the rut. But 2018, 2019, we had some very mild winters and started experiencing these climate change issues more frequently. 2018, 2019, we didn't have any, uh, we, we didn't have any land fast ice on our oceans. The bay did freeze uh, within the shallow areas, but we just didn't have no sea ice. That changed in 2020, 2021, to where it got back to normal to cold winters. We finally saw below zero weather for a period of time. But then, yet we started also experiencing later fall freeze-ups, uh, sooner spring thaws. So that kind of, in my opinion, listening to the elders kind of disrupt when the caribou do come into their uh, migration paths near the Kotzebue, Notak, uh, the Unit 23 area. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's program is a discussion on the future of Alaska's caribou. Moderator Jocelyn Estes speaks next. So the question I had written down for you is, do you have any advice for other Native corporations that may be contemplating resource development on hunting, fishing, and gathering locations? But feel free to add to what Cyrus said. I think Cyrus covered all of it, really. The, the only thing I would add is that I think the, um, in terms of climate change with increased precipitation, there's been challenges to um, having ice over feeding areas and causing it to be a bit harder to do digging for them to get and forage food in the, in the wintertime. And so we, with increased storms, there's also issues related to that for caribou as well. And um, what I think Cyrus also shared is really accurate. And looking at back at recordings of our elders, they talk about these phenomenon, phenomenon in the past that have happened that are more related to population change. But what we're seeing today is this combination of population change and climate change impacting the herd and a real strong effort from our regional leaders like Cyrus, who are in game unit 23, trying to pursue ways to ease that pressure on the herd. And I can go to the other question if you'd like. Well, uh, let me ask a follow-up. What does, for either of you, what does this do to hunters' plans, all these changes in the climate and the herd? Yeah, well, these changes, you know, it, uh, like I've mentioned earlier, the uh, freeze-up cycle tends to be much later. 
and it was just a couple of weeks ago, well, three weeks ago, we finally did see some caribou cross uh, caribou. That was they, they waited until the ice froze in front of uh, Kotzebue, on the east side of Kotzebue, on the narrowest part, which is Lockhart Point and uh, the mouth of Notak. So once they did make that cross, we were able to do a little har- do some harvest there. But by then, it, al- it was already late in the season. The bulls that we preferred to get were in the rut, so we had to be selective to try and get the younger bulls and avoid cows if we can, mainly because the purpose of the caribou, you know, uh, and they're on their decline, and just to try to help them out. So, so we, we submitted that proposal on our own selves other than the uh, agencies doing it for us. So you'll hear about that here shortly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's, there's also sometimes we'll see one of the challenges of climate change, too, is there, there's pressure sometimes to get out and t- people taking greater risk. And so the safety of harvest can be a challenge when there's a preference and there isn't the ice that people rely on. And so the safety aspect of it in search and rescue needs sometimes increase when people are taking those risks when the ice is not good. Is that fair? Yes. And along with that, the frequent storms that we've been having, yeah. you know, that goes along with climate change. I mean, storms that just door back to back, you know, would go on for days. Back in the day, we would get some storms, but they wouldn't happen for, you know, three, four days and another big one hit again. So those changes that we're seeing, but you have uh, mentioned it, rest, there is a risk to it, you know, and we got to more watch the weather more closely than what it was before. We can't predict what it's going to be like the next day or two, like how it was before. We're, the people before us were able to predict what the weather's going to look like three, four days later. Today, we couldn't do that. Well, let me pose uh, some of these same questions to Heidi about the Nelchina herd. Are you seeing some effects of climate change affecting the Nelchina herd? And one of the reasons why we're talking about the Nelchina herd is because it's accessible by road by all of Alaska's main highways. And so a lot of hunters from south-central Alaska and Fairbanks from the interior hunt the Nelchina herd. So how's climate change affecting that herd, and how's that affecting hunters? So with the Nelchina herd, it's a little bit different situation. We don't have any really smoking guns that climate change is a, is a huge factor at the moment. We don't kind of have the, the ice issues that the, the herds in other areas may have, whether or not they can cross the ice and that sort of thing. Um, our herd is not dealing with quite as many of those factors. We did just have two severe winters in a row, and so a lot of people are thinking that potentially could be a result of climate change, and it very well could. Uh, we had two very similar severe winters in a row about 30 years ago. Um, so whether this is a cyclic weather type thing or whether it's climate change, we can't say yet. Um, but without a doubt, these last two severe winters in a row certainly impacted the herd and precipitated the situation that we're in now with the herd and with a, a precipitous decline, essentially. We got a couple of questions from people who couldn't attend, and this one is from Wilson Justin. He's an Atna Athabascan man from Chistachina, former chief of the Chishna Tribal Council. And he said, with the permafrost melting and changing the terrain, how is that affecting browse for the caribou? Is that something you can speak to? We don't have any solid data to say that the permafrost melting has caused any major changes yet at this point. With the Nelchina caribou herd, we are currently collecting a lot of habitat data to assess the status of the range. 
Um, our concern, Nelchina, like I said, is a little bit different situation because of the way that this herd, the history of the herd and the management of the herd. We're a little bit concerned that the herd may have impacted the range by essentially being a little bit too large for too long, similar to what happens in kind of the boom cycles. And that's a, that's, that's, a strong hypothesis that we have right now based on our data, so we're testing that hypothesis by gathering that habitat data on the range to see if indeed the range has been impacted by essentially overgrazing or if there are other factors that may have impacted the range, such as you know degradation from permafrost fall or anything like that. Um, but comparing the status of the range to historically what data we have, and like I said, that's just one hypothesis. Uh, there's a lot of different pieces of the puzzle, and we take every little piece and put it together and try to see the best that we can what's going on. And like I said, they're very complex. It's a complex ecosystem. It's a dynamic population. So there's a lot of different factors that are at play. Go ahead. Yeah, I'd just like to add that you know, Liz, Cyrus, and I were all in a meeting all day today on the Western Arctic Caribou Herd, and there was actually a presentation during that meeting looking at the effects of climate change and that the absence or permafrost melting might allow more shrubs to grow. And so instead of having this habitat that's easy for caribou to travel through, now you have this dense shrub habitat that's able to grow without that permafrost there. So again, that's in the Western Arctic herd range, but it's just, you know, caribou's on our brain since we're (laughs) in that all-day meeting and uh, now we're here. So thank you. Thanks. Another thing that's, if I can add, yeah, Kathleen, please is, do because it's something that is real interesting in me. Also, is I think we had seen a, it sounds like a ridiculous number, but it's something like a seven hundred percent increase in lightning strikes in the northern part of Alaska, and the impacts to vegetation, um, specifically lichen for caribou and their ability to recover, is a concern that um, we've been hearing about at the U.S. Arctic Research Commission. But I think that was also talked about yeah, today. Again, and that was because there's more wildfire. That climate change, there might be increased. Uh, wildfire, which can affect um, lichen, and if you have a wildfire go through an area, it could be what they said, 50 to 250 years for that lichen to recover. So there's some other impacts from climate change that it could uh, affect caribou habitat. So I got a couple of questions. One from Bob Burnett from Sandpoint, and another from David Ritchie or R- Ricky. And the questions, their questions are similar. How do the herds interact, and do they interbreed with other herds? And um, how do you distinguish the 31 different herds when they cohabitat? So, Chris, can you speak to this? I'll do my best. Um, some herds are pretty isolated, so those ones are, are fairly, fairly easy. The herds on the north slope, it's been looked at probably the, the best. Um, we've got collars. We go out and put collars on the various caribou herds so that we can figure out where they are, so that we can count them, so that we can go and look at births uh, in the spring. We can look at sort of the numbers of, of calves to cows in the fall, get various metrics that Heidi was talking about before. And what they've seen is that uh, on those four caribou herds that go across the north slope, that there's a lot of intermixing of those herds. We'll go out and we will collar what we think is a Teshapuk herd caribou, and lo and behold, next year it's hanging out with all the Western Arctic herd caribou. And sometimes it can be 
large chunks of the herd will they'll, they'll intermingle, and all of a sudden a bunch will go. And we we estimate even on the order of 10, 10 to fifteen thousand caribou might might change. And that's similar with the Central Arctic herd and the Teshapuk herd, which so those two are next to each other, and then going on to the Porcupine herd, which is uh, over in Anwar and, and intermixes with the Central Arctic herd. And then I would kick it to. Heidi, to talk about the overlap that may happen on the winter range for the 40-mile and Nelchina herds. Yeah, we, we see similar situations with a lot of our herds. Um, Nelchina, 40-mile, and Mentasta caribou will often intermingle on the wintering range. It's pretty normal to have these herds mixing, and it's pretty normal to see some herd switching now and then. Like Chris mentioned, we'll collar a bunch of Nelchina caribou, and one year one of them will decide that they're 40-mile caribou, and they'll do that for a couple years, and then they'll decide that they'll be a Nelchina caribou again and then come back. Um, So that's pretty normal to see that. But basically when they're most separate is during the calving time of the year. They'll go to their traditional calving grounds, and whoever shows up on the calving grounds that year, that's what we consider that herd. So Nelchina on the cabin grounds, we count how many are there. There might be a couple of 40-mile collars mixed in. That year, we're going to call them Nelchina caribou because they're, that's where they're going to be during hunting season. <laughs> um, so they're going to be managed as Nelchina caribou. And that's why we're trying to get population information every year to stay on top of these herds and the status and the trends because they are so dynamic. You know, and that's one of the things that plays into the dynamics is this mixing and switching and so forth. All right. So the next question is for uh, Cyrus and Liz, and that is, are there any traditional techniques for animal selection during hunts that are uh, told to increase herd health and that sport hunters might be wise to adopt? Well, for the most part, that brings me down to uh, the lead caribou and allowing the lead caribou to uh, pave the path for the ones behind them. And once that happened, then, you know, you got, I shouldn't say easy harvest, but you get to harvest, you know, the ones behind them because once... The, the lead caribou paved the path for the ones behind them. They're, they're, they're just not going to turn around. They'll, they might uh, divert a little ways over, but at the end of the day, they're right back to the tracks from the ones that uh, first crossed. And so that's the message we've been trying to bring out, you know, within our meetings is uh, what our elders have shared with us. So our elders, they paid close attention as a way of survival on caribou uh, habitat, the behavior, you know, to be able to get them well before the days of snow machine. So it was either by dog team or on foot. Yeah, the only the only other piece I would add is we were talking a little bit about this earlier today was uh, harvesting younger bulls is also something that we talked about. Like, is it- yeah, the, um, the the reason that we're hunting the younger bull now is because the main bull that we were that we prefer to have are on the rut or just getting over the rut. So once they start getting over the rut, they they tend to lose a lot of their body fat. But so, yeah, we focus on the younger bull this time of the year while the the, uh, rutted bull is just recovering its process. One of the concerns, I think, if I can, and I don't, my intention is not to create controversy. I think when I have heard um, both in the Hunter Success Program and our elders talk about the lead caribou crossing, another real important conversation that occurs in our region is the concern about how activities may affect just herd behavior. So even if you aren't hunting, if you're going out sightseeing, 
really being mindful about where the herd is so that you're not disrupting the front end of the herd and its migration into regions and communities, especially during this time when the herd is down. Okay, well, that segues into the next question I have, which is how has large ATV use and traffic affected Unit 13 Nalchina caribou herd and habitat? And then it says um, there were a 1,000 more ATVs than 50 years ago. There's certainly a lot of ATVs out there. Um, There's no doubt about that. And there's been an impressive expansion of trails in Unit 13 over the last at least 20 years. And certainly that has impacted hunters' ability to get out and target caribou. It has, without a doubt, it's impacted some of the habitat in some areas. How much we are still assessing, you know, when, we, when we're when we mapping, we're, like I mentioned, we're collecting this habitat data and we're going to be mapping the quality and quantity of forage across the landscape, essentially. And so we'll be able to get at some of those questions on have some of these degraded areas where we've got spider webs of trails across the landscape, um, are those areas of degradation big enough to be impactful to the caribou herd? Um, we're going to be looking at those types of things. And... So with the Nelchina caribou herd, because it is so accessible and in such high demand, it's a unique situation because the intention of management with that herd since the mid-90s has been to maintain it, use that hunter harvest to maintain the herd well below carrying capacity with the, with the hope of not impacting the range that we see with the big boom cycles, the normal boom cycle of caribou. The animals essentially overshoot, you know, when things are really good, productivity is good, nutrition is good. The herd grows really quickly, and they overshoot the carrying capacity, and they overgraze the range, and they go through that bust cycle. And that range can take a long time to recover, as the herd is also taking time to recover in numbers. And so with Neltina caribou, the intention has been to avoid those boom cycles so that we avoid those impacts. And in order to do that successfully, it requires a lot of harvest, which requires a lot of hunters on the landscape. So in one way, perhaps those hunters are negatively impacting the habitat, but in the other way, without those hunters out there, the herd is most definitely going to overshoot, you know, grow so large if we're not controlling the population that it will overshoot carrying capacity and the herd itself will cause that, that range degradation. So it's kind of a catch-22. So, um, and this is, I think, is a question for Chris. How effective is predator control for increasing caribou numbers? That's very context dependent. And it really depends on the herd and the situation that a given herd is in. So probably one of the best examples of effective predator control was on the southern Alaska Peninsula, the herd there, we call it the sap herd. And in the early 2000s, it, had, it was declining fairly quickly. And even though birth rates were really pretty high, only uh, 1% to 2% of the calves were surviving to the fall. And there were some mortality studies that were done that showed that wolf predation was just basically responsible for decreasing what was high birth rates to very few numbers of calves in the fall, just in that early summer period, right on the calving grounds. And so uh, we instituted predator control and reduced those wolf packs considerably. And that same fall, the survivor uh, survivorship of calves to the fall was much, much higher. 
and we continued the predator control the following year and again continued to have good cohorts of calves recruiting into the population as Heidi had talked about with that recruitment into the becoming adults and that was really able to turn around the population and the population has continued to grow and it went from a place where harvest was constrained to now being available uh, via harvest ticket. So, and harvest ticket just means you can just go get a caribou tag and just head out there and go during the hunting season. So it really changed things around considerably. I said it was context dependent. So sometimes if the range quality isn't good, then it might not make sense. Sometimes these herds are in places where predation control wouldn't make sense, such as on, you know, Denali National Park. It's not allowed. So that makes a difference. And if a herd is increasing rapidly, uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to have it increase even more quickly by uh, instituting predation control. So because we're concerned about overshooting carrying capacity like Heidi was talking about. In other cases, a herd may be down for various reasons, but predators may not be the issue that's responsible for keeping it those numbers low. So it's very context-dependent. So you guys, you came up with some phenomenal questions and way more than we can than we can ask and get answers to. But I'll ask you two one more, and that is about food security. How is the decline of the Western Arctic herd affecting food security in northwest Alaska? Well, for the most part, the challenges are the distance we have to travel for caribou when they're you know, not running through where they normally would migrate through. Distance travel, timing of the caribou, cost of living, high gas prices. So, you know, all those details put together adds up to it. And then Liz got more to add on to it. Yeah. As we were talking to you, I was thinking about the question about positive things that can be done related to hunt, like caribou and people who are sport hunters. And one of the influences I think that we talk about in our region, and I've heard in other areas as well, is how there is a decline of trapping activity. Um, in our areas that are were a normal part of predator control, um, just not directly called predator control. And because those pellets are not economic for someone who is paying about $10, you know, between $7 to $15 a gallon of gas in our region to go out and do trapping activities and then go and sell a pellet, they're just not going to make that back. So there has been conversation about, well, what can we do to incentivize more predator hunting? And that's something I think sport hunters could consider, um, where, of course, it's legal and allowed. And then in terms of food security, things something that is important to keep in mind is, is that as we move towards these declines, we see more restrictive regulations. And the cost of participation impacts the ability of younger people to participate in a traditional and cultural activity. I remember hearing stories when I was younger about the punitive measures that were taken um, in, when the, the uh, herd was an originally at a steep decline in the 70s where it was a sudden stop. And at that time, someone might harvest illegally and all of their gear was taken. And they may be a primary provider for their household and the impact on them is very severe. And so I think right now we're in a place where we can mitigate by taking appropriate measures and avoid those kinds of things and making criminals out of our own people, but also avoid severing the ability to pass on knowledge from one generation to another um, because of the, the limitation of activities, because that is how we learn. That's how we participate in our, our, our culture. And one of the things that I really appreciate, I'm totally going to use my prop. I brought this. This is um, 
our elders worked with us to put this together. And it's uh, all the different parts of our caribou with the Inuit backwards. And this is an important part of some of the programs we have in order to try and maintain those connections with more modern day hunters in the face of some of these changes. So food security is not just about the animal or what we get from it. It's about our culture, our way of life, and our ability to maintain our connection to our heritage um, now and into the future. All right. So we're just about out of time, but um, does anybody have anything they want to add? Just take a minute or two that you didn't get to yet. Mm -hmm. Closing comments. Sure, I'll make a closing comment. Um, first of all, I mean, of course, thank you for this discussion. And one of the themes was, you know, declines of caribou and what can be done. And so I'll just put a plug in that one thing you can do is get involved in your federal subsistence management program and the regulatory process. Uh, we're always, you know, looking for more people to serve on our regional advisory councils and also submit proposals, comment on proposals, come to our public meetings. All the meetings are open to the public, and you can get some free coffee, and that's any motivation. But um, certainly one thing to be done is just to become more involved in the regulatory process. And again, this is concerning harvest um, regulations. And while, Heidi, as Heidi mentioned, there's so many different factors affecting the caribou herds and their decline, harvest is one of the most controllable factors that we can do to help prevent further decline. So again, if you'd like to become more involved in the federal subsistence regulatory process, uh, you can visit our website at subsistence.gov and find out more information there. So thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thanks for the opportunity. But when we speak about what our elders said, how our elders shared, it came from way back. It came from time immemorial. So we don't have anything written, documented down, but it came by meetings. Meetings took place well before statehood, and it's over dinner. And uh, these types of activities, whether it be caribou hunting, seal hunting, or just putting a roof over your head, you know, uh, know, we all work together to make that happen. As a teamwork, as a way of survival, we work together. So a lot of this information that did get passed down is, you know, what little I hear, I just share today from, from, from our elders. So I don't know anywhere near half as much as the elders' uh, indigenous knowledge information as, as what the elders from before me. I shared what little I learned from them. I think something that's real important to you um, is the intersection of the traditional knowledge that Cyrus is talking about in research. Um, something that we hear consistently in the Western Arctic Caribou Working Group, or at least that I hear and at Iraqs, is how limited data exists related to local harvest and how that impacts, impacts management decisions. We also talk about that on the, at the U.S. Arctic Research Commission at a high level about wildlife species. One of the important hallmarks, I think, right, of what we can do in these groups is bringing these two knowledge sets together to make sound decisions. But that also means that there needs to be support for research. There needs to be support for co-management. All of those kinds of things need to be strongly supported so that we have the right systems in place to ensure that we can continue our traditional way of life. We can have responsible development. We can have communities that are thriving. And it's not all peachy, right? We have to work through those tough times and declines in the herd or those other kinds of conflicts that come up. But it means being consistent and providing ways to gather that information and bringing stakeholders together. Because if we don't, and we end up fighting over resources, one of the things that we're taught when we fight over resources, right, is that they will decline and we will lose access to them. 
I'll just add a couple of quick things, although that's very hard to follow. Um, <laughs> so a, a shameless plug as well for um, working through the local advisory councils and the Board of Game on state management and do really encourage people to engage in those processes. Um, I think we're all here are very committed to the long-term sustainable management of caribou herds in Alaska. We all clearly care about caribou. One of our biologists, Lincoln Perrette, often says when we start talking about caribou and what we know about caribou is that they're always surprising us. We have a great deal to learn, all the more reason to bring traditional knowledge and you know, uh, Western research together. We don't know exactly what's going to happen to caribou herds in a changing climate. There's, you know, as we talked about, they occur in so many different habitats and are capable and living in very variable environments. So that's a bit of hope there. But the more we learn and the more we work together to learn, the better information we'll have uh, to bring to decision makers and the decisions that are made. And that's it. Thank you. So that leaves you, Heidi. That leaves me. (laughs) I have heard a traditional saying that no one knows the ways of the wind or the caribou. And I think in a lot of ways, we, were, we will always be searching. We'll always be trying to better understand caribou and better understand these situations and always trying to catch up with that knowledge and gain more knowledge and learn from others who have come before us. That's really important. For me, I think it's important to remember that these are natural cycles for caribou, and so it's not all doom and gloom. If we're in some low cycles with some of these herds, we don't, in most cases, we don't have a lot of reason to think that we're not going to rebound in time and that the herds won't grow back. They they probably will. This is what they've been doing for thousands of years. And it's just important to remember that they're not just a resource. You know, they're a being that is integral to the ecosystem and is really, really powerful and really impactful on the landscape and in that ecosystem. And it's important to respect that and remember that. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. We just heard a discussion on the future of Alaska's caribou presented by Alaska Public Media. Find us on the web at alaskapublic.org, the Alaska Public Media app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks for listening. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.